I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but it's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. For decades, the CD was the only neighborhood where African Americans were allowed to live. Despite all kinds of obstacles like job discrimination and predatory lending, people in this neighborhood managed to thrive, innovate, and really contribute so much to this city. But now, with all the change happening in Seattle, Central District residents and their businesses and families are being displaced so fast. We hope that neighborhood stories can inform the way we think about community, what it means to have it, and what it means to lose it. And we hope these stories can shift the way we talk about displacement and change in our city and in cities across the country. So, for the last year and a half, we've been recording oral history interviews with the people who built this neighborhood. We've recorded stories about small businesses, food, music, school... Stories about innovation, solidarity, tenacity, and resistance. Stories that are hilarious, heartbreaking, and really relevant to what is happening in our city today. And now, we're sharing those stories with you. When most people think of Seattle and music, a few big names come to mind. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Quincy Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Kenny G, maybe Sir Mix-a-Lot, and likely Macklemore. But have you ever heard of Cold, Bold, and Together? What about Family Affair? While Seattle may be known for grunge and rock, the Central District also colored the city's musical landscape with funk, soul, and jazz. The CD was also home to a lot of artists, and many of them acted as community leaders, creating programs and opportunities for Central District youth to also become artists. It was a creative and inspiring place for painters, actors, dancers, and many other kinds of artists. On today's episode of Shelf Life, we're hearing about all things music, theater, and art that came out of the Central District. At 114, I was in the backyard, and I heard these guys banging on some drums at the apartment complex. And I went over there to join them to bang on some drums. This is Daryl Lockhart. He grew up in the CD. And I... remembered, oh, wait a minute, I actually play the piano. You guys, let's go to my house and let me play the piano, bring the drums and all the other stuff with you. And that was the beginning. One of the kids that had the guitar was Wayne Barrage. Wayne Barrage had been playing in the church for years, like me. He said, Daryl, I never knew you could play the piano like that. Why don't you join our band? 
I said, really? Okay. Never joined a band before. So the band was called the Gospel Sounds Unlimited. Reverend Maynard, he was the bass player. Deacon Flowers was the trumpet player. I was on the organ. Wayne Barrage was on the guitar. And coffee houses sprung up all over the city. People was into Christ, and we'd go to these places. They would serve coffee and donuts and praise the Lord. That's what we did. And we played in places and didn't get paid nothing. But it was fun. And it was so funny, because of these Jesus freaks that was going on, the Catholic Church wanted to kind of change the old kind of services, right, to kind of keep people interested. And they hired this band that played basically old school jazz. So we packed up all our equipment and we put it into the church and the priest kind of filled us in on what was going to go on. And I'll never forget it. He's talking to these people. He's talking to them and he's doing, I don't know, and then he's talking to them and he's doing the cross and the whatever it is. And I remember he said, and then he finished and he turned to us and said, hit it. And we started off, we were tearing that song up in this Catholic church, big, beautiful cathedral. And that was the beginning of this movement of the Catholic Church into a more modern era, I guess, from what the old traditional ways run. Soon after that, we decided, okay, there's no money in this, and we're going to have to get out of doing gospel music. And so we decided to switch and do secular music. But we would do battle with groups like Robbie Hill, The Family Affair, Cold Bowling Together. So we, we competed with the other bands, and we were a younger band, younger members than those other guys. But we got gigs because my dad loved to talk. He loved this. It was a great sport for him to get us gigs. We had great directions. We had parents that were involved with it. There's the director made us rehearse. A lot of musicians in Seattle didn't want to rehearse. They just wanted to show up to the gigs and get paid. And uh, my parents wouldn't allow them to do that. And we worked a lot of places. We worked all over the city. My name is Gary Robert Hammond. In my teenage years, what I did was, you know, and I guess I can say this now, I fell in love with the saxophone. When I heard the sound of the saxophone as a little boy, Larry Gossett's father was the guru for music. They'd bring over, they'd have these parties and there would be music there. And I heard some of the greatest music, I don't care if it was jazz, country, western, that I'd ever heard in my life. But I heard the saxophone. And there was something about that that I said, I'm going to play that. I've got to play the saxophone. Wow. And there would be music there. And I heard some of the greatest music, I don't care if it was jazz, country, western, that I'd ever heard in my life. But I heard the saxophone. And there was something about that that I said, I'm going to play that. I've got to play the saxophone. Wow. So I was in bands, and that's what guys did around here. We played for the Masons. We played for the YMCAs. We played for the high schools. We played for the cabarets. Oh. We played. So we, we had a variety of outlets. We also got to the point where we could go in places like the 410 Supper Club and Black and Tans. 
Those were the big clubs because our groups were good enough. Just up the street here from where we are now, that used to be the Blue Post Tavern. There were several Blue Post Taverns. And I wasn't old enough to be in there, but I'd be in there because I played in the band, and as long as I kept quiet, did my job. Nobody bothered me. Nobody said anything. I never, I, I didn't have to work a job. I played music. I made real money. That's why I kept doing it. I had a car. My dad didn't buy me a car. I had an apartment. Something about Seattle where the music scene was always that way, you know. But it was very segregated because Seattle was very segregated. My name is John J. Jackson. Everyone calls me JJ. Uh, I was born here in Seattle, Washington. I was adopted when I was three years old and raised on 21st and Spruce. Jackson was, it was a hit. Black and tan. There was a pool hall on the corner of 23rd and Jackson called Smokey's. We used to gamble in there. There was a short black guy, smoked a cigar. His name was Smokey. And we used to go in there and we would uh, bet money on horses and different things and pool. You know, I was like 13, 14 years old, I believe. And I would go to the clubs and mop their floors at night to make extra money. Because my mother always told me, she said, well, look here, son, you know, in order for us to get you something, you got to work. So I'd mop the floors and I would hear all these different musicians play you know, and then there was another club on uh, 14th and Jefferson called the Blue Note. That was another popular place for blacks to go. Jimi Hendrix played there for the first time. I worked with uh, Dave Lewis band, so he played here. And then we had Family Affair. We had Cole Bowling together. We had Quiet Storm. And they played at a club called the Golden Crown. Uh, and there were, there were steep stairs to get up to the club. So if you got drunk, you had to sit on your ass and, and, and come down. That's just how it was. And that was the club to go to. And then we had the Heritage Club, which is on MLK, uh, where Seattle Housing is now. And the Shy Lights, uh, the uh, Temptations, all of them came there to that place. They paid us, you know. Five, six band, uh, $100 for a night, you know. It was, but it wasn't about the money. It was about us playing. That's what it was about. Like Seward Park, we used to go there every summer, and all the blacks would be there, barbecue, everybody would be barbecuing. And we'd have bands, different bands there and playing, and we'd party. Well, that don't happen no more. That's gone too. that Daryl makes it sound so easy to start a band, like it was just something to do to keep busy. Daryl and Gary both mentioned that there were plenty of places for people in the Central District to go where they could share and hone their musical talents. And they found audiences all over the neighborhood who really enjoyed and supported them. Music was pretty segregated in Seattle throughout the 60s and 70s. 
On one hand, that meant that Central District musicians were limited in where they could play. But it also meant that the performers that people went to see were neighbors, family members, and friends. Getting involved in the arts and music scene was like an instant connection to the community. That was certainly Al Doggett's experience when he moved to Seattle as a commercial artist in the late 60s. He got to know his neighbors by offering art classes in his central district home, and then later by teaching all over the neighborhood. This used to be a place to come for kids anyway. The, the, the community, in a sense, knew they could come here. I used to go down and, and, and play basketball with the kids, and they were like black kids in the community, and that's the first people I met, you know, was, was the, with the kids <laughs> playing, playing basketball. And they couldn't figure out who I was. They couldn't get a sense of me, you know. I was, they knew I was working, you know, I had a car, and, uh, but they didn't understand why I was home all the time. I tell them, you know, I'm an artist, I do artwork, I do a commercial art, and, and they would come up, I'd invite them up, and they, I'd show them the work I'm doing, I'd show them some of the advertising stuff, and, and I'd let them come in and, and hang out and do artwork or just whatever, you know, but they, they got a kick out of me. I started teaching classes with kids and adults here. The parents wasn't sure about the kids wanting, going into art, so I had to talk to the parents and talk to and they, even the teachers. There was one school teacher, Miss Rainbow, who was a pretty popular uh, person. She taught art classes at one of the public schools. And one of the students that I had, he had him work on stuff and she, she showed it to the teacher and, and she just swore he didn't do it. And I had to talk to her. I had to go up and actually meet her and all and, and she kind of eased out after a while. But the parents were the key, you know, getting them to understand about letting the kids go, give them materials, give them supplies. Then every once in a while, I'm at a store somewhere, and a gentleman comes up to me, you know, this big guy, he says, hey, Al, don't talk it. And I'm looking up, and he says, I used to take classes with you. And I said, really? <laughs> but it was, it was just, it's great that, you know, I don't realize or remember how many people I've touched and, or I've added something to their life, you know. You don't know, really, in that sense. One artist whose family has been in the Central District for at least three generations is Inye Wakoma, and he practically grew up in Al Doggett's studio. Literally, I grew up in art. I mean, Seattle was an art town. Seattle was an art town that had art apartheid, but it was still an art town. You know, and black arts were everywhere in the CD. You know, we spent a lot of, my mother was not in the theater, but we spent a lot of time at Black Arts West, which is a black theater group. Al Doggett, you know, who's a prominent artist. You know, listen, I remember being like five or six years old in Al Doggett's studio, his house up here on 34th. And he used to tell us he had some freaking monster in his basement. He used to be scared as fuck to go to near his basement door. To this day, I've never been in Al Doggett's basement. I've been in his house so much, but I've never been in his basement. Uh, I learned how to play Scrabble at Al Doggett's house. I'm a Scrabble, you know, I'm a low-key Scrabble master now. Um, but, you know, as a kid, my mom, you know, and a few other folks used to hang out at Al Doggett's house and play Scrabble on a regular basis. That's where I learned to play Scrabble. You know, my mother was an artist. She was a jeweler. Um, there were way more art fairs in Seattle and the region then than there are now. The University Street Fair, um, the Bellevue Arts Fair, 
Um, there was a regular arts fair at Pike Place Market. There was an arts fair in Fremont. Bumper Shoot was a legitimate arts place for local artists. Like my memory of Bumper Shoot is you go to Bumper Shoot, it was free. Um, you went and there were arts vendors, like arts, like real artists. But it was like an arts place. And that was the focus. That's what it was about. She did those and then she would do she'd do her art at um, the Black Community Festival, which later became a Moja Fest. And we would be there with her. In fact, there were times when there were two arts fairs happening at the same time and she would register to be at both art fairs and she would set us up like at the Pike Place Arts Fair and then she would go and have her booth at the University District Arts Fair. And she would set us up downtown, me and my sister and I, and she'd have all the stuff and she would leave us literally with thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. These were kids, you know what I'm saying? With thousands of dollars of merchandise and she'd show us how to fill out the receipt book. She showed us all the tags and the prices on everything, on all her all her pieces. We knew a little bit about the art, so we could talk a little bit about it. We would be selling art at <laughs> the, the Pike Arts Place. You know, art was central. So many people that we interviewed shared stories about being involved in the performing arts as children growing up in the Central District and how much fun it was. My name is Phyllis Catherine Beatty. I was born at Doctors Hospital. Uh, Cecil Beatty, born 1924. He sang in a men's chorus a cappella group called the Songcrafters, uh, Mr. by Joseph Poe. A company came from New York and did a play at the, the Green Lake Aqua had, Theater. When they had the Aqua Theater out there. What, what Joe Poe did was got members in different choirs put them with our men's course, and had one huge choir, Old Man River, and they had this guy from New York. He had a Joe, real yeah. deep bass voice. He sang Old Man River. In the swimming pool, the girls... Synchronized swimming. Synchronized swimming. Yeah. It was really a big show in the 60s, I think. Yeah, I was like nine or 10, and I went to rehearsals with them every day. I knew every line, every song, every move on that stage. And one day the director said, we need some, we need some block kids. He said, bring the pole kids down. I said, the pole kids? Mr. Poe had four kids. And I was like, I, I threw a fit. I fell out screaming, crying, desperate to be on that stage. And my dad saw me up there screaming and crying. He, my mother knew nothing was wrong. She didn't move. But daddy came up there because he couldn't stand to see us cry. And he said, what's wrong? I said, I want to be on the stage. And he asked for the pole kids. And Daddy said, well, you just as poor as the rest of them going down there. <laughs> you remember that, Daddy? Yeah. <laughs> I jumped up and ran down to that stage. <laughs> and I knew what he said didn't make a damn bit of sense, but hey, if it got me on that stage, I didn't care. And the guy didn't know a poor kid from a non-poor kid, so he put us all in the show. My name is Stephen David Sneed, actually. I go by Steve Sneed. I was born in 1956. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I grew up here in the CD, yeah. born in the CD, <laughs> literally. So what we had at the time was an African drum and dance group. I played the drums. And so at the time, you have to figure in the 70s, the African drum and dance thing for teenagers, high school kids, was 
like hip hop today. Everybody wanted to do it. Everybody was doing it. There was a lot of this going on. And see, our group, the unique thing about our group was we played African rhythms, but we, we would adapt them ourselves. You know, we had some modern instruments. I had a whistle and these were all, they worked with the thing. But again, we had no adult supervision. We did this totally on our own. We started 15 years old. And, um, by the time I finished, I guess I was about 20 or so. But we also wore costumes that were a combination. We had glitter. We were like a combination of Sly Stone and an African drum and dance group. Our claim to fame was that we played every prison in the state of Washington. <laughs> and uh, I mean, every single one, you know, Walla Walla, Monroe, Purdy. And not just once, a lot of them we played several times. We'd go regular every year. We'd go back to Monroe. You know, they'd see us coming. The black community festivals, of course, we'd always play every year. We'd play, uh, we did churches because we were connected to the Grace Methodist Church. And so we'd play all over uh, the state. And uh, we played at a thing called CTI Jazz at the Paramount. So we had to rehearse at the Paramount all week. It was just a blast, you know, because they had the dance group. They had CTI Jazz. This is like 73. And then we performed at the big thing. It was filmed. It was on TV or something. And, um, boy, we thought we were just, you know, we were it at that, at that time. Steve Sneed would continue to be involved in the arts, and he became one of the first executive directors of the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. He and his team pioneered one of the most popular youth arts programs in the area that still runs to this day. So when I was in my teens, I primarily played the drums and we performed, but my sister, who was younger than me, wound up starting to do comedy. And so she started working at Black Arts West. So I went to all the plays back then and just starstruck. Oh, man, I, I so badly. In fact, the first audition I went to, I never made it because I was so scared. <laughs> I turned right around. I knew exactly where I was. I said, I can't do this. So I ended up doing the very last play of Black Arts West, which was Brownsville Raid. It wasn't until University of Washington, Black Theater Project, I was doing a play every quarter, you know, and I did several plays there. And then I went on to study acting and I got cast in a drama, a TV drama, Channel 9, called Cellar George. I played the title role, Cellar George. It catapulted me into the theater atmosphere here in Seattle and it won a local Emmy Award. I was nominated for an Emmy. The show won, I didn't, but I got hired by the Boys and Girls Club to do theater. And then I started what was a youth theater. And the goal was to myself and another guy named Rico Bimbri and, and also Darcel. We all came from the African Drum and Dance Group and started this youth theater, which now looks like what has manifest into what is the teen musical, which I'm sure you've heard about. The teen musical, most recently in 2017, almost 100 kids participated in a production of The Wiz, and it was brilliant. It makes me hopeful for the future of arts programming in the neighborhood and in the city. It happens every summer, so keep an eye out for it. Another person who is really instrumental in the teen musical, as well as many other arts programs for youth, is Isaiah Anderson. 
literally, I can't think of what the arts community would look like without the Central District. Literally, I can't even imagine, uh, especially for uh, young people or people of color who came through Langston at the time it thrived and it had its season. And wow, I can't even imagine what the nightlife would look like in Seattle without first knowing what the Central District gave to the nightlife here. You know, when you had places like Thompson's Point of View and, and all those places where people just hung out just to be hanging out. I can't imagine what community living now in Kent, Renton, Federal Way and those places would look like without those people who once lived in the Central area. Um, and they take that with them wherever they go. You know, that sense of family, that sense of, you know, let's all do this together, um, which doesn't happen anymore here. A lot of what nobody's doing is to get to know your neighbor. And so I think uh, I would say to them, just turn off your phone. Find a central district resident who is still here and just sit down and talk to them. Because what you can't Google is the camaraderie that happened during the Black Festival. What you can't Google is how lively 23rd Avenue used to be. What you can't Google is how lively the, the parade that used to come down Martin Luther King. People everywhere. Um, so you can't Google those things because um, what they don't see is the pain that these individuals have gone through with what has been lost. Normally on this podcast, we like to end with a thoughtful reflection from one of our interviewees. For this episode, we wanted to switch it up and end on a lighter note. Here's another story from Isaiah Anderson solving a local performing arts mystery. Thanks for tuning in. So there was a young lady who worked at Langston Hughes who came to Seattle and she got a job at Langston Hughes. I'm a playwright. I'm an actress. I do all these things. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm great. I'm so good that Whoopi Goldberg's character that she used and gained famous with, she stole that from me. And we were like, oh, you're full of it already. But okay. Um, and her name is Ray Perry. Ray Paris is the name she went by. Um, and she would come and we, she created this show called Supper Club Cafe. And it was an improv type show. Uh, and it was a group of sisters who owned a restaurant uh, that they did all this cooking and they had all their, their issues. One sister was an alcoholic, always flirting. Another sister was, you know, a singer and was going to be famous and wasn't going to be at the restaurant long. Um, and the show went great. We hired all these kids to usher and serve food. And at the end of the production, uh, when all the kids received their checks, when they got to the banks, the banks told them the checks were no good. When we were contacted by places where we rented stuff from, they were like, where's our stuff? When do we get it back? And we called Ray, and she was gone. And we were like, where did she go? Nobody knew. She had disappeared. Disappeared. Three months later, one of the kids who was in the production, Sherry Saretze's son, Cameron Sparks, um, called me at 1 o'clock in the morning. Isaiah, turn on your TV right now. Hurry up. Turn on your TV on Channel 11, please. And I was like, Cameron, what's going on? Just turn on your TV. And I turn on my TV, and there's Ray Paris, Miss Cleo. <laughs> Call me now. 
psychic hotline. She was a psychic hotline individual. <laughs> she was the famous Miss Cleo, who recently died. Um, and when she left Seattle, she created the character Miss Cleo. And that's the truth. <laughs> we never contact. Matter of fact, we tried calling the hotline that night. And she had everybody, I don't know how you set this up, but she had everybody from the state of Washington blocked. You couldn't get through. Miss Cleo worked at Langston Hughes. <laughs> You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag Shelf Life Pod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Myla Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Myola Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening.